0: There was a time in my life where where you know i I was praying um, I had always felt like I'd always felt like you know I was God had God had called me God had gifted me to to minister and and I was busy I was working with young people I was doing evangelism I was doing a lot of preaching a lot of traveling and and just very busy uh, very busy many years of my life and um, always on the go and and I thought, you know, I always thought that I would have a family. I always thought that I would, uh, you know, marry. And and at some point, you start to wonder, you know, um, as you get older, and people start looking at you like, you know, maybe there's no hope for you anymore. And <laughs> and um, I remember my grandma, my grandma Clark. She would say, you know, you better get married. All the good ones are going to be gone. <laughs> and. Um, uh, and i i i used to tell her i remember i used to tell her well grandma i only need one you know it's not <laughs> like and um and so um I, I remember one the first time the first time i didn't really hear about jane actually i just heard, i, I uh, um i was i was i was going to a board meeting and um i um I arrived at this city and, and was checking into my hotel and just down the desk there was a friend of mine, uh, Dr. John Chung, who was checking into the same hotel for the same meeting. And we're, We'd been fr- good friends for a long time and and it, somehow there was a problem with his room. I think the organizers had failed to actually reserve a room for him. Um, so here it is, it's like midnight and or close to it at 11 o'clock and, um, and I checked into my room and And I just, on a sort of a little bit of a whim, maybe an impression, I said to him, I said, you know, if they don't find a room for you, I had gotten an extra key from from my clerk, and I said, I gave him the key, and I told him the room number, and I said, if they don't find your room, um, I've got two beds, you can come, you know, stay in my room. And um, so um, I think it was like midnight when I heard a knock at the door, and in comes Dr. Chung. And um, we started talking, and that was the first time um, John told me. He said, "You know, I have someone i think I want you to meet." Now you have to understand, I had been through those types of things um, <laughs> more than I can count and and um, it's not that I wasn't thankful or grateful for people's help, uh, but you know it's just after a while, it's just awkward. I'm a shy person. It takes me a little while to get to know people and build a relationship, and, and these blind dates and just introductions and stuff, they're awkward. I mean, I can remember, yeah, it's just, it, so So. So I was not at all impressed with this, um, with this, uh, you know, suggestion, and yeah, yeah. We talked. We talked about a lot of different things. In fact, we talked till like two o'clock in the morning. The room was dark, and we were just just talking, and, um, and, uh, but then he started, you know, keeping coming back on to that, and, and um, I didn't know who he was talking about. He never told me any details about Jane, and um, so it was, it really sort of, it was a few months later when he, um, he started in earnest talking. It it so happens that, um, I should probably let Jane tell this part of the story, but um, Jane had come with uh, um, Jake and Helen over to uh, to Louisville, I think it was, where GYC was that year, and and um, I was preaching the last meeting, the Sunday morning meeting in Louisville, and so I mean I didn't see her, but she saw me, and and on the way home um, she got a call from John, and he said, so what did you think about the last sermon? and and um, and then she, he started saying some weird things to her. He said, like, you know, he likes Korean food. And um, she's like, what in the world is he getting at? And at um, the same time he's calling me, he starts really sort of pouring on some pressure. Um, you need to come and, and, and give a Bible study at my house. Come give a Bible study at my house. And I said, you know, I was, I was, I was busy. And, um, and so he started calling me. I think every single week he called me. And... Um, much to my surprise and somewhat chagrin, he he even called my parents, and um, and, and I'm like, what in the world? And um, finally, actually, it was Michelle that um, sort of um, confirmed what she what he was saying about her and said that you know I, she was a really nice girl and I should meet her. And so finally, I said, okay, it can't be, can't hurt, right? I mean, you know, I've survived the last setups, so. Um, I I told John I would give a I would give a Bible study to his house, and um, it was going to be middle of March I think before I could make it down there. So anyway, um, John was why so long you know, <laughs> um, but that was the first time. So anyway, I come down middle of March. Jake actually picked me up at the airport, and um, and uh, we met for the first time at. Um, at Jake and Helen's house, and we had dinner. And the next night, she came after work to the Bible study at John's house. He has a Bible study his home where he invites his patients to, and sometimes there's, there's usually twenty or so, maybe twenty or thirty people that come to the Bible study. And and um, and after the Bible study, I got up the nerve to, to ask her for her number, and I was nervous. I mean, I was. The next morning, I asked John, when do I call her? You know, I didn't want to interrupt her schedule and everything, and he's call her at 7.50 in the morning. She'll be on her way to work. So that's what I did, and we started talking on the phone, and and pretty soon we were talking, you know, a couple hours a, a day. I mean, both of us figured we're old enough that we need to know right away if this is something that we're interested in, and if not, if the Lord doesn't lead, and we looked for red flags, and we were praying, and... And, um, and we started, we started, in fact, um, we started, uh, you know, really, really talking a lot. And, um, it was a couple months later when, um, Jane made her trip, made a trip actually with Jake and Helen again. I owe them a lot, as you can't tell. (laughs) Um, Um, I was living up there near Andrews and, um, I had a little apartment there on the Nile River and... And um, we had been talking for a long time. I had gone down, I think, once or twice. I had some other meetings down there in the area and seen her some. And um, we had a, a Sabbath afternoon. We were down by the river and had a little worship together. And then um, I don't remember exactly what I said, or maybe even if I do, I'd probably get emotional if I said it. But um, um, I said something along the lines, I asked her if she'd be my girlfriend. And, um, and she didn't say yes she said "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm but that was close enough for me so so um so i started making these trips down to georgia that was taken right after um right after there after she became uh, my girlfriend officially it was um i think the date was april 24 and 2010 and um it started a, started a pattern of uh, weekend travel for me. I mentioned to you earlier, I would start after church in Naperville and make my way down, usually three or four in the afternoon, so I could, go, I could get a full tank of gas before I... Uh, uh, and, and I wouldn't have to stop for gas before sundown. After sundown, I would, I would uh, keep driving, get in there late. And, and you know, there were snowstorms. It didn't stop me. <laughs> there was those late nights... The drive down there seemed to just be, it was just like that. I mean, the drive back, not so much. You know, it was a long ways back up through Indiana to, to Bering Springs. But um, what made that drive so quick? What made that, those hours on the phone seem so short? Um, it wasn't the concept of marriage, it wasn't an idea, a ritual or a cultural norm. It wasn't even that I decided that I wanted to get married. It was a person. And her name was Jane. It was a relationship. and um, it was, of course, a growing love between two hearts. That made those long drives seem so short. Now, if I drive two or three hours, I'm thinking, ah, "I'll never get there." But then I, I really—I I don't remember those being long at all. You see, ultimately, relationship is what matters, and it's what matters to the heart of God. Um, it's what matters to Jesus—is relationship. We are created in God's image, and. God is a God of relationship. When we look at the Bible, we see men and women who inspire us. We read Hebrews chapter 11, and we, we uh, see the great men and women of faith, Abel and Noah and Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Samson and David. They make us want to grow spiritually spiritually. Um, they, uh, they, they make us want to be more than we are, a better person, a better man, a better woman than we are. They make us want to know Jesus in a way that we haven't known before. This week we've talked about knowing ourselves better. We've talked about knowing Jesus better. We want to grow spiritually, don't we? We want to become more like Him. We've talked about spending time in the life-changing, converting, eternal Word of God. We've talked about living by faith rather than feeling, surrendering our hearts To Jesus we want to grow spiritually we want to do the right things but today I think this evening I just want to press a little bit of a pause button because we don't want to just make a checklist of things that we ought to do we want to remember that the base most basic essence of a religious experience is a relationship I don't grow in my relationship with Jane by focusing on the concept of marriage I don't grow by having a checklist for what courtship or dating is supposed to accomplish. Our love didn't grow because we had those lists and did those external things. Our lives became blended together because we focused on each other, getting to know each other, learning to respect one another, seeing God's hand in each other's lives and of those who had... uh, who, those uh, who were leading and, and giving us counsel. I still remember um, we became officially dating the first time she came up and visited. The next time I was down in, in Dalton, Dr. Chung said to me, said, so? And I said, you know, so? Um, when are you going to propose? <laughs> and I said, uh, well, Dr. Chung, you know, we just started dating. It, well, last time, you know, you ask her to be your girlfriend. This time, ask her to be your wife. I said, well, you know, I need to make sure that we're compatible, that she's the one for me. She says, well, I'm telling you, she's the one for you. <laughs> it's good to have godly counselors, but godly counselors don't make a good marriage. A relationship makes a good marriage. So you can hear sermons. You can hear... You can hear all kinds of things said. There can be exhortations and advice and all kinds of checklists and knowledge. But until you get to know the person, you don't really have a relationship. I want us to turn in our Bibles today to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to spend a few minutes here um, as we think about Jesus, looking to Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, of course, follows Hebrews chapter 11. And in Hebrews 11, we've had that great, that great uh, hall of faith with many, many men and women who by faith have chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of god they've had their their eyes set on a country a heavenly country a city whose builder and maker is god they saw the promises afar off they were persuaded of them they embraced them and then they confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims and uh, by faith they endured all these things because they wanted what god had promised and those promises were real to them struggling to live the kinds of lives that these men and women of Hebrews 11 lived the, the the answer is to look to Jesus to focus our eyes on Him. Yes, we can learn a lot from Abraham. Yes, we can learn a lot from studying the lives of these men and women of faith. But ultimately, our eyes must be fixed on the one with whom we can have a relationship. I can learn a lot from Abraham, but I can't have a living, abiding relationship with Abraham. I can learn a lot from from Enoch and from, from Moses and from all the other great men and women of faith, the Bible's heroes, this cloud of witnesses that surrounds us and urges us by their lives of faith to live a life with the eternal realities kept before us. But I can't have a relationship with any of those illustrious individuals. I can have a relationship, a real relationship, a living relationship with the one who is alive, Jesus Christ. And so it says looking to Jesus, the author and the what? Finisher. The finisher of our faith. The founder and per- the perfecter, the English Standard Version says, the, the founder and the per- perfecter of our faith. Consider him, verse 3, that endured such contradiction of sinners, endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you not, may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The Bible here tells us that our responsibility is to keep our eyes on Jesus. He is the one who says He is the author. He is the one who is the finisher or the perfecter. As long as we stay looking to Him, we will, in the end, be saved at last. Oh, I'm so thankful for the promises of the Bible. Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul uh, gives us a similar promise And verse 6, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, we don't have to be worried about how we're going to get ready for that day. What we need to be worried about is keeping our eyes on Jesus today, living by faith today, not just a checklist of how to grow spiritually, number one, number two, number three, number four, as, as simple as I try to think about salvation, as, 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 as well as I hope to communicate what I've learned about growing in, in grace, growing spiritually, it's not about a checklist. I could teach you perfectly a whole bunch of theological and, and uh, soteriological truths here today, this week, but Jesus is the one that can teach you every single day from henceforth. Jesus is the one that has to apply truth to your heart. I can't. The Holy Spirit does that, and a relationship with Jesus. You know, there's one place in, in the Spirit of Prophecy where she talks about evangelism, and she says, she says what, if what, I forget exactly how she says it, so I'll paraphrase. She says, we, must, um, we, must, we must, must teach people to fasten their eyes on Jesus. And having done this, we may step aside. Because he's going to teach them everything we, they need to know. We don't have to worry about, listen, <laughs> I don't mean worry. We don't have to focus or fret on the, on the checklist and the things that I've, that I've laid out for you. These are concepts, spiritual concepts. But as you come to know Jesus, they will come naturally. They will. Keeping your eyes on Jesus. Why should we keep our eyes on Jesus? I think there's a couple of reasons. I want to just look at Jesus tonight. Just look at some qualities of Jesus, some characteristics of Jesus that I think keep me looking back at Him. The first is that Jesus knows. You know, I had a a, a friend when I was growing up that had an older brother, and they were were very dedicated spiritual people. They weren't Adventists. They were Sabbatarians, and and, um, my good friend growing up. And um, the older brother the older brother was uh, was uh, they were they were all very individualistic type of people, very unique people. Um, I won't go down that. But um, I remember one day, offneil was the my friend's name, and um, and his his older brother was Nathan, and um, we were out working. His dad was a land surveyor, and uh, Nathan, the one of the second son I guess, was a land surveyor as well. And and it was our job to do things like brush the lines you know we'd go out there with these machetes or brush axes and we'd clear the lines between the survey points so they could shoot a transit across and measure angles and all this and so we would be out there and i mean it wasn't like we were paid to do this but i'd go to stay at his house and that's what he did and that's what we did you know and he'd come to my house and we were homeschooled at that time so here we were um we were out there in the woods and i remember i remember Nathan one day he's a, he's a big guy great big guy and um he said said Chester you know how to change the record books in heaven and I said and I said well not sure exactly well he leaned over to me and and um, grabs a hair and yanks it out (laughs) he said there we did it Matthew chapter 10 verse 29 says are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father but even the hairs of your head are all numbered, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 30. So we just change the record books in heaven. Fear not, Jesus continues, fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows listen if god knows every sparrow that falls if he has the hairs of our head numbered then he must know the things that concern us right he must know the struggles that we face and the difficulties that we encounter jesus can relate jesus experienced and endured the trials and difficulties of life here on this earth jesus grew up in nazareth a place where his purity and innocence was scoffed at made fun of, and ridiculed. Jesus grew up in a complicated home environment where half-brothers and sisters didn't quite accept Him. Jesus never quite fit into the home, the neighborhood, the culture, and was rejected for being different. Are you tempted sometimes to think that nobody understands? Jesus understands. He understands you. I remember when I was working in literature evangelism as a student, and I would go from door to door, and one of the MAGA books that we used to sell was the desire of ages and in fact, at least at first we had it in two volumes because it's sort of a big book, you know, and and we had these the volume 1 and volume 2 and and when we saw sometimes, you know, when we got when we when we when we walked up the ho- to the house, we might look around the yard and see, you know, what was there and if there are toys and stuff, we might be canvassing them with some with some of the Bible story books or the bedtime story books, you know, Uncle Arthur's books. These stories have have lessons that teach moral truths, you know, to your children and and but there was one thing that we would notice. I, I remember many times we would walk up to a door and, and there would be a young mother that would come to the door and open the door and there would be, you know, a baby crying in the background and there would be another kid hanging onto her legs, you know, and looking out, hiding uh, uh, behind her. And, and you can just sort of see, sort of see the harried look on the face, you know, of a, of a young mother who's, who's so busy and so tired and doesn't have time for this. And yet you know Jesus can help her. And you know, you know that you'd love to share it. So, so one of the things that we would do—I um, hope this isn't manipulative—it was we wanted to. But we would turn to this quotation in *Desire of Ages*, and um, and we would just share with her one of the truths of this book. It's from page five hundred and twelve. Jesus knows the burden of every mother's heart. He who had a mother that struggled with poverty and p- poverty and privation sympathizes with every mother in her labors. He who made a long journey in order to relieve the anxious heart of a Canaanite woman will do as much for the mothers today. He who gave back to the widow of Nain, her only son, and who in his agony upon the cross remembered his own mother, is touched today by the mother's sorrow. In every grief and in every need, he will give comfort and help. And you can sometimes just see these faces. I want that book. I want to be reminded of Jesus. The Desire of Ages. Oh, it's a precious book, by the way. Spend time contemplating the life of Christ from God's Word. Um, I encourage The Desire of Ages as well. It's a wonderful book to get to know Jesus better. Jesus knows our struggles. He does. Sometimes when you feel all alone in this world... Remember that Jesus knows and Jesus understands. Not only does Jesus know, but my Bible tells me that Jesus cares. You know, speaking of a mother and their burdens, look with me in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And um, the story here is, is found of... These mothers that were careworn and and tired, they wanted, they wanted Jesus to bless their children. The Bible says in verse 13, Matthew chapter 19, verse 13, Then there were brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Suffer little children and forbid them not to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. You know, desire of ages illuminates this. I mean, it's pretty clear even from this passage. If we look on the next verse, it says he laid his hands on them and departed thence. Can you imagine how that encouraged the hearts of these mothers? I mean, women weren't exactly the most important people in that day, and um, Jesus, the disciples thought certainly Jesus didn't have time for unimportant people like women and children. But I want you to know that Jesus is no respecter of persons. Everyone is of equal value to Jesus. The king upon his throne, the mother, the child, it doesn't matter. To Jesus, they were all equally precious and equally valuable. And when Jesus saw these being shooed away and treated disrespectfully, Jesus turned from those maybe more important people, in the world's eyes and he spent quality time with these mothers and their children and they left there with a song in their heart and hope in their heart for what Jesus had said and the prayers that he had prayed those words can you imagine can you imagine listening to Jesus pray for your child I think every word would just echo and re-echo in a mother's heart for years to come Jesus spent this time and there was somebody watching there's somebody watching this whole thing as Jesus leaves. This one of these important people. He might have even been one of the important people that Jesus had to turn away from in order to focus on these tired, careworn mothers <clears throat> and their little children. And not to be outdone, he actually, the Bible says here, behold one came and said to him, another, another gospel says, one came running. And the way the desire of ages says it in page 518. It says, he saw the love that Christ manifested toward the children brought to him. He saw how tenderly he received them and took them up in his arms. And his heart kindled with love for the Savior. He felt a desire to be his disciple. He was so deeply moved. This is the rich young ruler we're talking about. He was so deeply moved that as Christ was going on his way, he ran after him and kneeling at his feet, asked with sincerity and earnestness the question so important to his soul and to the soul of every human being. Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Oh, friends, when we look at Jesus, we see somebody who cares. Jesus cares about the most unimportant person, the most unimportant thing. If it's important to us, it's important to Him. And uh, here we see the example of how Jesus cares. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, in the English Standard Version, says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And then Hebrews 4, verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a high priest who knows what we are going through and who cares. Oh, what a wonderful Savior we have. We need to turn our eyes upon Jesus, looking unto Jesus, the author And the finisher of our faith. Oh, not only does Jesus care, Jesus loves. Jesus loves. And it's an unconditional love. You know, we as human beings, we have a very hard time comprehending the concept of unconditional love. It's one of the reasons that we we repeatedly slip back into the default mode of seeking to earn God's favor and maybe even our salvation by doing meritorious things, by, by trusting in that we're good people and we've done good things and maybe even trusting the really important things like praying or, or reading our Bibles. We do those things. And do you know that you can do all those things and not have a relationship with Jesus? If you've ever known someone that could pray very, very well in church on Sabbath it was very mean the rest of the week, there's a pretty good chance they didn't have a, really re- a real relationship with Jesus. I'm not here to send us out to judge other people, but to judge ourselves, right? To examine our own hearts. Because the fact of the matter is that Jesus loves us with this unconditional love. He loves us even with our habits and addictions. He loves us even when we are lost in sin. He loves us even when our heart is in rebellion against Him. He loves us even when we are slapping Him in the face. You know, I remember there was a a friend of mine one time when I was in college who who he and some of his friends had decided that he was not going to live the Christian life. They tried. This is what they said. We tried Christianity and it didn't work for us. I'll never remember one. I'll never forget one day. Um, I I um, I just I'd spoken actually that evening for a vesper service, and this particular friend had been with, me, uh, had been there, I think, because he was required to be there, and um, and afterwards it hadn't been a sermon. It had been a, actually a report from a mission trip, and um, but there was something something in this report struck this young man's heart. And he came into my room in the dorm afterwards, and I was already up on my top bunk, and, and he was just sort of sitting at the head of my, standing at the head of my bed, sort of behind me, and, and talking. We were talking, and he, I'll never forget these words. He said, he said, Chester, tonight you almost made me want to become a Christian. Now, that word almost is very aggravating, <laughs> you know? I mean, that just burned me up, Almost. And I didn't know what to do. So I I said, well, you know what I'm going to do? I don't know what else to do um, because I'd tried talking to him. And, you know, I mean, he wasn't open to talking, but he had made this comment. So I said, you know what? Almost. If it's almost, it's not too much further. So so I'm going to pray for this guy. I'm just going to pray and pray and pray. And I'm telling you, I didn't just pray when I had my morning devotions or evening. Every time I thought of him, I prayed through him throughout the day. I said, Lord, and, and this is one of the things I have often prayed for my friends. I said, Lord, give him no peace. (laughs) <laughs> until he gives his heart to you, you know, and I'd pray, and I'd pray, and I'd pray, and I remember this was this was Friday night, so Sabbath, I was praying for him. Sunday, I was praying for him. I didn't really see him again until Sunday night. I was walking toward, we were going to chapel, and we were walking from the dorm, and here he is walking next to me, and he said, hey, Chester, he said, what, you know, you know what I did today? I said, I have no idea what you did today. He said, I went I went canvassing." <laughs> I'm canvassing. I mean, what's, what's he doing selling books? You know, he doesn't believe in God and, and um, doesn't want to be a Christian. Why is he selling books? And, and this is the next thing that came out of his, word, his mouth. He said, He said, it's not what they say it is. They told me that to sell books, you had to pray, have a connection with God. But I went out there and I sold two books without God. now what do you say now I'm, I'm I'm telling you when you start praying intercessory prayers for people these things start happening to you it's the weirdest thing that happens people will start coming like you're praying for somebody all of a sudden you have these opportunities that open up for you to say something and I was totally unprepared I mean the last thing I thought was I needed to say something I was just praying you know God could do it and here he's I didn't know what to say, and I just sort of stammered something out. I said something along the lines of, well, you know, think how many you could have sold if you'd been praying, you know. I mean, I don't know. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I, I would go down to the chapel, and I'm, I'm there at Sunday night, and I'm, I'm thinking, Lord, that was such a lame reply. <laughs> that was such a lame response. And, and, you know, a whole bunch of better things to say came to my mind. And I'm in this chapel. I don't remember what it was about, but I remember what I was thinking about. Um, And I prayed in my heart. I said, Lord, give me another chance. (laughs) Now, there's a whole bunch of us leaving. I wasn't sitting anywhere near him. There's a whole bunch of us leaving and long hallway and different, you know. We're going up some stairs back towards the dorm. And who do you think is walking next to me? Same friend. And um, I said, you know, I was thinking about what we talked about earlier. And I realized something. God's not like us. You said you you sold those books without God. But in reality, the God that I know would have blessed you anyway. Because He loves us unconditionally. So even when we're slapping him in the face, he's still trying to pour out every bit of love he can squeeze into our lives. That's not the way we are. You slap me in the face, I'm not going to help you, right? But God isn't like we are. He, He loves us even when we don't love him. He loves us even when we reject him. And by the way, you know, friends, He can't bless us as much as He would like to when our hearts are closed, right, when our fists are closed. But He still wants to just as much. He still wants to love, I mean, He still wants to bless us because He loves us with an infinite, unconditional love, love so much that He was willing to give Jesus for you even when you didn't want Him with no guarantee that you would accept Him. And if he was willing to give Jesus, what length would he stop at, right? Won't he freely give us all things? Jesus loves us with that kind of an unconditional love. My friend was quiet. He didn't say much. I don't know if this... I, I doubt he even remembers this. But some weeks went by. I kept praying, and, and my friend made the decision to give his life to Jesus. Today, he's a pastor. And... Um, <laughs> Um, I don't know if he would remember the story, but I remember the story. And I saw saw God's prayer answered, and it taught me an important lesson that night about the unconditional love of God. God loves the kind-hearted atheist and the mean-spirited Christian. He loves the saint in the church and the sinner in the gutter. He loves the young person who has lost her way and the parent who has made mistakes. God loves the well-adjusted and the socially awkward. God loves everyone with the same unconditional infinite love that would not stop at any length and gave his only begotten son to to die for us. Jeremiah chapter 31 and verse 3, God says, "I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore with loving kindness I have drawn you." Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible because it just it just blows your mind at at how God's love is so in, incredibly persistent, it's infinite, it's everlasting, it's unconditional. And we see here in Romans chapter 8 in the last few verses, beginning in verse, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 37, nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. God's love is, is, is sufficient to see us through anything that hell can send our way. Anything that this earth, any experiences this earth, we in this earth that we can experience. For I am persuaded, verse 38, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing and nobody can separate us from God's love. The only thing that could possibly separate us from God's love is our stubborn heart. Nobody else. And even then, in some senses, we aren't separated from God's love because God will love us throughout all of eternity. Oh, my friends, (laughs) Jesus loves. Aren't you glad we have a Savior who loves us? He loves you. He does. He loves me. Not only does Jesus love, Jesus believes. Oh, I love Jesus because of who He is. When you think about it, what kind of a friend could you have like this? Come with me to the temple in Jerusalem. It's early in the morning and the sun is just turning the sky golden. Cool morning desert air is is accented with the songs of the birds, the stirring of the animals and the bustle of the new day beginning in Jerusalem. Jesus is already in the temple where a small gathering of society's misfits was growing by the day. These were the people who didn't usually come to church because they felt out of place. They were the poor. They avoided the stares of the religious folk who knew that anyone poor must not have the blessing of God after all. These were the sick and the crippled who had been told by the religious leaders that their lives would never amount to anything because God didn't care about them. These were the children who were accustomed to being swatted like flies and pushed to the position of least importance. They were attracted to Jesus. All of these misfits were attracted to Jesus because he was different. Though religious, he seemed to relate to them, seemed to care about them, usually, actually accepted them just as they were. With every miracle of healing and every expression of acceptance and forgiveness, hope for their future would swell in their hearts. And suddenly, on this morning there was an interruption a clamor behind them you know the story it's found in John chapter 8 John chapter 8 we find the the story of the woman caught in adultery and she's dragged into this sacred precincts of the temple where Jesus is teaching early in the morning it says, in early in the morning, verse 2, He came into the temple, and all the people came unto Him, He sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto Him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto Him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting Him, that they might have to accuse Him. But Jesus stooped down and with His finger wrote on the ground as though He heard them not. You see, the, the, the Jewish leaders had sunk to new depths in trying to ensnare and entrap Jesus. They had organized this sin. Don't, don't, you don't think they actually just happened to stumble across this. They had, the woman had been framed and set up for the purpose of ensnaring Jesus, finding some way to get Jesus to cross himself. You see, you know the story how if Jesus were to say stone her, they would run as fast as their little robes would allow them to run to the Roman rulers and say, Jesus is trying to exercise capital punishment, something the Jews were not allowed to do. Jesus is trying to set up His own government. If He said don't stone her, they would go to the, Ju- they would go to the Jewish people and they would say Jesus doesn't believe in the teachings of Moses. Either way, Jesus was caught. You see... <laughs> As people watched, you can only imagine what they were thinking. Even the people who had been on the fringes of the Jewish society, gathered in the temple that day because they knew that Jesus was different than the religious leaders. They knew Jesus loved them and cared about them and and actually had some um, interest in their lives. Even they must have sat in the temple and said, well, wait a minute. (laughs) You know, Jesus, this Jesus, he's awful loving and accepting, but he has to have some limits somewhere, right? I mean, you can't just allow that kind of immorality. You can't just allow sin. This is church after all. Surely he has to draw the line somewhere. He couldn't just love everybody and love them unconditionally. And the crowd fell away and watched to see what Jesus would do. As he writes, the accusers one by one leave. In verse 10 it says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Catch these words. Neither do I condemn you. I can just imagine that among these disenfranchised, this disenfranchised throng of societal outcasts and misfits, sinners and the sick and the sorrowing, I can only imagine there must have been a collective gasp that went throughout the crowd. A thrill of shivers must have passed up their spines with hair standing on end and eyes gaping wide and mouths dropped open. They marveled that a man so holy, so pure, so undefiled, could even love a woman so low, so broken, so spent, and so rejected. Her acceptance by Jesus must have brought hope to the crippled boy's heart that even he might be accepted by God. The drunkard, the poor, the widowed, the ugly, the sick, the lame, the misfit, each found in Jesus' actions that day a new confidence that he too could be accepted by the healer of Galilee. You know why people followed Jesus? You know why people loved Jesus? Because he loved them first. That's why. Before long, the wonderment turned astonished whispers to astonished whispers, and the whispers to joyful exclamations, and the exclamations to shouts of hallelujahs, of praise and adoration. Rejected by society, they were yet accepted in the beloved. And they could not contain the joy that flooded their hearts. Oh, you see, it's not just that Jesus loved. He wasn't finished yet. He wasn't finished yet. Neither do I condemn you, he said. Go and sin no more. The English Standard Version says, and from now on, sin no more. What? Can you imagine what this woman thought as she heard these words? Some of us have used those words and we've said, see, Jesus teaches victory over sin. We don't have to live lives of sin. We should overcome sin. But I don't think that that's what the woman heard. I don't think the woman heard when she said that, oh, I've got to be perfect now. I can't make another mistake. I don't think that's what the woman heard. I think when Jesus said, go and sin no more, the the woman caught her own breath because there was something amazing about what Jesus had just said. When Jesus said, go and sin no more, it expressed a belief in her that he thought she could live a different life. This was an amazing concept to a broken, bruised, bleeding heart who didn't have self-worth and didn't believe in herself. This teacher of Galilee, the healer of the sick, the one who can make the blind see and the lame leap, the one who can, who can even bring the dead to life, this man from Galilee, the holiest, purest, most powerful teacher she's ever heard, he believes that she can be different than she is today. Oh, you see, it's not just that Jesus loves. Jesus believes. Jesus looks at me and he says to me today in 2015, go and sin no more. And it's not this this high hurdle that he's trying to make so high I'll never be able to achieve and I'll get discouraged. It's Jesus saying to me, Chester, I believe in you. You can be different than you are today. You can live a life. You You can be the man that I want you to be. And Jesus looks at each one of us today and he doesn't see us as we are. He sees us as we can become transformed by his grace. And he expresses that belief to you and me today. He says to each one of you, whoever you are, you can put your name in the blank. Go and sin no more. I believe that you can be the person I dream you to be. Jesus believes in us. Oh, it's a marvelous thing to be loved just the way you are but it's an altogether and even greater and even more inspiring experience to have someone believe that you can be different than you are. Oh, you see why people love Jesus? Oh, I love Him. He's such an amazing, amazing Savior. Jesus empowers when he said to this woman, go and sin no more, he didn't just say them as idle words and, and something that was a hope, a dream, a, a, you know, some sort of a mirage never, never to be achieved. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 13 tells us, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want you to know, friends, it's not by focusing on the sin that you want to overcome. It's by focusing on Jesus. You know, I remember I used to hear preachers when I was growing up who preached the doctrine of overcoming sin. And I'll be honest with you. While I believe in in victory in Jesus, I think sometimes we can focus so much on on the sin that we lose sight of the Savior. We can focus so much on overcoming the sin that we we just... Listen, let, let me just put it this way, and I know I need to wrap things up. The Christian life is not about overcoming sin. That's scandalous, maybe. It sounds that way at first. We begin the Christian life. How should I say this? Let me explain it this way. If the Christian life was just about not smoking and drinking and resting on Sabbath and um, not swearing and, um, and not doing any of the bad things that we slip into, then the neighborhood cemetery would be full of perfect Christians because they don't do any of those things, right? The Christian life is to be filled with good fruit. We replace evil with good. And the Christian life is abundant life of fruit, bearing. It's not just focused on stopping doing things it's the experience of god filling us to overflowing so that we're bearing fruit. Does this make sense? Yes. So we can focus so much on the stopping that we don't replace with the good. Paul even says overcome evil with good, right? And 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 he says he says let the lips that were lying speak the truth. The hands that stole let them work to provide and to give to others, right? He gives this principle of not just stopping doing things but Filling your life with good things. Uh, In teaching people to live uh, healthier, to have a healthier diet, some health educators. They've stopped trying to say, don't eat this and don't eat that. They say, start adding this to your week this week, your diet this week. Add this much of this food to your diet this week. They start putting more and more good food into the diet. And you know what happens? It pushes out the the bad. I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't take sin seriously. I'm not trying to say it's not a decision to act, to rid sin from the soul. Desire of Ages says is an act of the soul itself. We have to make the decision to allow God to do something in our lives and to part ways with those things that would bind us to this world. But I am saying we should keep our eyes on Jesus and allow Him to replace the evil with the good. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know how we are able to have faith in Jesus? Because when we get to know Him, when we get to see His character, when we understand that He knows, He cares, He loves, He believes in us, we begin to believe also that we, even I, can be changed by His grace. And it all happens by looking to Jesus, keeping our eyes fixed on Him, spending time studying His life, giving our imaginations license to dwell on His perfections. Um, Those who are saved at last will have their eyes fixed on Jesus, looking to Jesus. When I get to the throne of heaven, I can just imagine, there on that sea of glass, do you ever let your imagination just run wild? I can just imagine when we come up to that city and you know, oh boy, that angel chorus that goes back and forth and the hallelujahs, and it's going to be amazing. And that pearly great gate swings open and Jesus says, welcome home. Well done, good and faithful servants. And then there's that whole, there's that whole thing on the sea of glass when we're all standing there. And can you imagine the redeemed of all ages standing together? And um, I don't think that this is going to be a, a, a big rush because, um, after all, we have eternity, right? Um, it's going to take some time. And I can imagine the ceremonies being interrupted by a lot of singing and just spontaneous outbursts of hallelujah. and Are we really here? You know, a lot of pinching sessions and so forth. And, but I can just imagine there's going to be this time when Jesus is going to hand out those crowns in my understanding, we are going to have literal crowns that I don't know exactly how they'll be, but, but that's, that's, that's what we're told. And can you imagine, with the saved of all ages gathered there, with all the angel hosts, with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and they're standing in perfect order and organization, and, um, and the names start to be called. It doesn't matter how long it's take, it takes. This is a special event. And the names start to be called. Can you imagine when your name's called? Can you imagine? You've been to a graduation, right, when the name's called and everyone claps and whistles and the family's over there in the corner shouting and shouting. And... But I think every name that's called is going to be an eruption of praise from everyone. The angels, there's probably going to be a gardening angel that's especially happy. Um, for that name I can just imagine we make that long walk down the aisle where everyone's shouting and praising and and just so happy and make that long walk down to the throne of God and then there there Jesus places a crown of glory with his own hands his, his nail scarred hands he places that crown of glory I can just imagine he places it on my head When I look into his eyes and I remember how he saved me, I think the first impulse of my heart is going to be, I don't deserve this crown. I'm just going to want to take it off and give it right back to Jesus. And I can just imagine Jesus is going to sort of chuckle and say, no, 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 I got this, this, I won this for you. Enter into the joy of your Lord. I can just hear his words to me. Now you're a child of God, a son of the king, heir to the throne, and this is your new home. I want to keep my eyes on Jesus because I'm not satisfied until I can see them face to face. I want to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. I want to be a part of that new and eternal kingdom. I could have studied marriage and learned all the checklists for... How to have a family, but my life was forever changed when I came to love a person. Today there's somebody waiting for a closer relationship with you. He's the most amazing friend that you could ever have. He already loves you with an everlasting love. You know the song. Oh, friend, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Can we sing that chorus together? Father in heaven, tonight, we want to just keep our eyes on Jesus. We want to know Him better. We want to love Him more. Thank you for such a Savior, such a God. Oh, Lord, tonight, as we've come towards the end of this week of camp meeting, we want to just linger in your presence. We want your Spirit to speak to our hearts. We want to leave this place with our hands in your hand, with our eyes fixed, focused on your face. Father, tonight there may be someone here who feels the tug of their heartstrings. There may be someone here to whom your Spirit has been speaking this week or even just tonight. They know they they don't have that relationship with you They may have a head knowledge, but not a heart relationship. They may have the checklists, but not have the love. Lord, tonight I just want to pray that they might just say yes to your love. They don't have to wait till tomorrow. They don't have to wait till later tonight even. Right now in the stillness of this room, we can each open our heart's door and say, Jesus, we want you to be our friend, our Savior. We want a relationship with you. Lord, I just know you hear the heart of each, each one here, the cry of each soul. You know the struggles that we face. You know the difficulties of our life back home. Whatever it is, our relationships, our work, our struggles, and you care. You know how even though on our outside we may often be all polished up, on the inside there's some problems you know our sins you know our habits that even other people don't know you know our weaknesses and amazingly you love us unconditionally infinitely with an everlasting love in spite of all those and you even believe that through your grace we can be different so tonight father I just pray that nothing would be allowed to stand in between our hearts and yours that we might hear your voice saying, hey, will you be mine? Will you allow me to love you into the kingdom, to love you throughout all of eternity? And Lord, help us not to allow the things of this earth to keep us from saying yes. Or even, hmm, Whatever it is, Lord, help us just to allow you to come into our lives. And you'll be the best friend, better than any earthly friend, better than any earthly spouse, better than anyone who could ever love us. You will love us all the way to heaven. May we have that experience. May we, I pray, have the experience of the things of this earth growing strangely dim as we live in the light of your glory, and grace. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by AudioVerse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about AudioVerse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.